Welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z. So glad to have you with us today. We are now in season three, looking at the nature of stress. We're going to dive into this ancient system and the way it works and plays out in our lives and talk with some truly amazing people who have knowledge and insights to help us find our way through the dance of life and the dance of stress that will have heart and truth and love in them. It's going to be amazing, I promise. Let's do this. Enjoy. Here we go. Will Horniak, welcome to that third season of the How Humans Work podcast. I am really grateful to have you on the show today. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's good to be here. It's really great to have you here. For the listeners to know, we know each other. And over the past year, we've had a more intensive relationship where I've been studying storytelling with you. And I wanted to have you on this season around the nature of stress. One, because of my deep admiration for the gift of storytelling that you bring to the world and that you've brought into my life. But also because I think there's power in the relationship between stories and the stresses we go through. But it's not often, actually it, it kind of is often on my show because you'll be the second storyteller that's been on the show. But it's not often people get to know a storyteller, I would say, or n know how one becomes a storyteller or what draws one into the world of storytelling to make it a, a profession. And so I'd like to invite you to start the show just to give a context of what moved you into the world of storytelling. First off, it's great to be here with you. And um, I, I always enjoy having a conversation with you. As far as how I get into storytelling, uh, one of the uh, initiatory moments was I was living in Seattle. This was uh, 1981. And um, I had been working in the past as a newspaper reporter. So I'd been doing a lot of writing and interviewing. But my real love was actually performance, doing sketch comedy and just cracking people up and doing skits and stuff. But I didn't know how to make a living at that. And then in 1981, I went to see uh, a wonderful storyteller, a man by the name of Jay O'Callaghan. He's from the Boston area. And this was at the Museum of Science and Industry. They have a beautiful theater in Seattle. I think there were about 350 people in the audience. It was a family audience. Jay told stories for maybe an hour. It was just him on stage. A spotlight on him. No props, no costuming, nothing. At the end of the hour, the lights went up and I was in shock. I literally asked myself, where did everything go? Where did all the people go? Where did the props go? Where did the scenes go? Because my imagination had made all these characters, had made all these scenes, and it was just him telling a story. And it was at that point that I just said, this, this is a really powerful art form. Uh, I was so moved by it. And I was just so enchanted that uh, he could carry us away on this journey just with words and gestures and facial expression. And it was at that point that I said, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do with my creative you know, abilities and such. So I, I started kind of the long road. I started to you know, find stories and volunteer my time at libraries and schools. Um, I was terrified to tell stories to adults. Uh, I had to hang out with kindergartners and first graders for a couple of years. <laughs> the, big, the big shift was uh, I, I told stories before a group of 10-year-old boys, and, and they're the toughest crowd. I always say, if you want to find out if a story's going to work, you get about a dozen 10-year-old boys in front of you. <laughs> they, will, they will give you no quarter. You know, it's like if it doesn't work, uh, it's not going to work. So anyway, that's how I started. And, um, uh, you know, gr gradually using, you know, 
volunteering time here and there at libraries and schools and then private parties. And then after doing that for about 10 years, and I was supporting myself as a, as a carpenter in those days. And uh, after doing that for about 10 years, I had enough work to try it as a full-time gig. So then I started doing a combination of teaching workshops and going to schools and, you know, doing uh, Irish shows and studying mythology and that kind of thing. So anyway, kind of a long answer to a short question, but. No, it's a really good answer. And I want to pause because I, I recognize in the world of being a storyteller, there's probably two core stresses. One is how do you get <laughs> your audience and make a living out and a living out of it? And then standing up and telling stories in front of people. And I see those as two kind of core stresses that I would imagine, you know, in a culture that doesn't really respect the arts or value it as much as, as maybe a traditional society would as, in a role. Um, particularly something that doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles, right. you know, storytelling, not a movie or a TV show or, or something like that, um, but just straight up human to human storytelling. Imagine there, there's some challenges around that path, um, but also more importantly, just the stress of, of exposing oneself and, and taking the risks mm -hmm. to, to share stories, to tell things and, and to offer yourself in that way to groups of people on the fly or spontaneous that don't know you, that don't have a relationship with you. And I imagine yeah, that, that was a learning process. How did, how did yeah, come that's, into that? That's true. Um, especially when I first started telling stories to older people, you know, I'm, I'm very concerned about what people think about me and, and all that stuff, you know, being vulnerable, you know, telling the story, I think part of the key to that, to working with that stress is um, trusting the story, trusting the fact that I love this particular story. And that was always one of the most important things to me and when I teach workshops, I emphasize that. If you're gonna tell a story, find something you love to tell. And you may love to tell it because it's funny or it's wise or it says something about you. Uh, whatever it is, uh, find something that really touches you. And then uh, you have the wind at your back and you wanna communicate that in a way so it touches other people. I've gotten into trouble telling stories where I, I overtell it or I don't trust the story. And I think that, you know, it's me, you know, it's, it's I'm up there and it's true. But I'm also a medium for something, uh, which is this great wisdom or comedy or entertainment, whatever it is. And so to relax with it. And also um, along the lines of stress, the important thing to know, I think, as a storyteller, is that the stage is in the imagination of the audience. And so a story is something we're doing together. And to, to trust the imagination of the audience, to make the pictures and get engaged with the story and to take this journey together. So to realize we're doing it together, I'm not just all alone up there, you know. The audience wants you to succeed because, you know, they're giving you the most important thing they have, which is their time. And so they want to see it well used. So they're, they're, they're there for you. Um, so use the time wisely, you know, know the story well, do the work you need to do on your craft. No, that's great because I love the transformative way you took my question, which is, hey, you're exposed here. And you talked about the things that transformed your sense of what that is, which is the relationship with the story, the, the love of the story, the, the trust in the story and the trust in the audience and the relationship there. And I think that is actually a really useful teaching that you're offering around how to be in relationship with stories. And you're getting close to some things I knew I wanted to talk about. But I want to connect a little bit further with you on your journey of becoming a storyteller first, because you had that magic experience in Seattle. 
I imagine that was like your North Star. You're like, wow, this guy is amazing. And then you went into his position. And and how did you find your way? And when did you know magic was taking place? Yeah. So I was living um, in the in the mid 80s and early 90s in a um, kind of a spiritual educational community called Still Meadow, just outside of Portland. And I would um, tell stories to the community there. And at times we would have... Um, you know, celebrations, harvest celebrations, winter celebrations, solstice celebrations, and I would find stories to tell. That's when it started to really come alive to me that this was something that was community building, that was that was something that was a way to celebrate, you know, festivals and certain special days. And people felt at the end of a story that we had, um, we had traveled together. And to me, that was part of it. I realized that, you know, once upon a time wasn't just a, you know, a, a conceit or a, a sweet thing to say, but you were actually leaving time. You were going into a different time. And I started to realize at certain points in the middle of a story, we're, we're here. We're in this other place now. As a teacher of mine, Maladoma Same once said, when you, when you cross the threshold of story, you enter into this other realm. And you need to go to that realm on a regular basis because the spirit is refreshed and once upon a time. You see, you feel, you understand things differently. Another part of the magic was I would go to libraries and schools and tell stories to kids. And it was so much fun. Just all of a sudden, this class of 30, you know, rambunctious third graders would like just be still. And they would just like be looking at me and you could just see their imaginations at work. You could just feel the machinery of their imaginations, you know, and at the end of the story, they would just be delighted. I'm wondering if we could go into a story, if you have a story that you'd like to bring just so we can start to experience it and build out on the power of story in relationship to stress. You have one in mind? Yeah, I do. Um, specifically in relationship to stress, because, um, you know, life. Life is stressful, and among the most stressful things that human beings face is the, the inevitability of death. Uh, that's a great stressor. Uh, there's a, a story I wanted to tell you from, from Ireland, and um, uh, it's a story about a, a legendary woman, a historical woman, actually. Her name was Biddy Early, and uh, Biddy Early lived in this uh, little village of uh, Fecal in um, County Clare on the west coast of Ireland, the west of Ireland. And... Uh, she was an interesting woman. Um, when she was a, a youth, a teenager, she did some kind deed. She never said exactly what it was, but she did some kind deed for the fairy folk, the, the wee folk, you know, the good people, as they're called. And they repaid that kindness um, by giving her the gift of what was called the second sight. She had incredible intuition. She could deduce things from the future. Um, she became a healer. And when people would come to her, she could kind of just see right through them and understand what the nature of their illness was. And uh, because of that, she was able to offer some type of, 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 of cure or some type of idea that would help them. Um, they called her an herb and berry woman because uh, she was kind of like a, an old pharmacologist. She, she knew the healing property of every root and bark and herb and berry that grew all around her. And she knew how to gather them together and make them into a to a tea or a lotion or a potion or a poultice or whatever was required. Um, so this is a story of Biddy. Uh, they say when Biddy Early was a very old woman, as, as old as dirt, she herself would have said. Uh, she was in the front room of her cottage. 
she had a stone hut at the edge of the village there with a thatched roof. And um, she was out there in the front room. She was sweeping up the front room when a knock came to the door. And Biddy Early, uh, she shuffled over to the door and she opened it up and she gasped because who was at the door but Death himself, the Grim Reaper. And, you know, he, uh, he had the, the, the black robe on and he carried the scythe. And beneath the black robe, there was nothing but bones, nothing but a skeleton. And he said, well, I've come for you, grandmother, because you know that every person has only so many years and months and weeks and days and hours and minutes and seconds. And all of your time has come to an end and you'll be coming with me now. Ah, oh, she said, death, I, I thought I had more time. You know, I feel fine. And well, the fact of the matter, though, is I've, I've lived a good long life, death. I've seen many beautiful things. I've loved and I've been loved. And so I'll be coming with you, death. Uh, just as soon as I finish sweeping out the front room, because I'm not leaving a dirty house behind. And he said, uh, well, grandmother, I don't think you, you understand her. I'm death, and you'll be coming with me now. And she said, uh, well, death, I don't think you understand something here, young man. I've always respected the dead, and I would expect a bit of respect from you now. I'm not leaving a dirty house behind. And if you were to come in and help me and quit being such a layabout out there, the two of us might get out of here all the sooner. And Death said, oh, bloody hell, because he knew this was a woman you weren't going to argue with, you know. Well, didn't Death himself come into the front room and she hands him the broom and he starts trying to sweep up the front room. But Death isn't used to manual labor of any kind. And he's kind of fumbling around there. And uh, by now, a bit early, she's, she's left the front room. She's in the kitchen. And from the kitchen, she calls out and she says, Death, Death, come in here now. You're, you're not much good at that. I want you to try your hand at this. Take this knife and start cutting up these potatoes and these carrots because, you see, I want to leave a stew. I don't want to leave any food go to waste, you see. And he said, oh, Jesus, you know. And he's fumbling around trying to cut up potatoes and carrots, and he can't do that either. And finally she says, oh, Death, what am I going to do with you? Um, I tell you what, put down the knife, go out to the front room, stand by the door, because, you see, guests are going to be coming soon. Because, you see, it's actually a party this evening, a birthday party, my birthday party, obviously my last birthday party, and I want you to go out there and welcome the guests. <laughs> That's what he said. He says, you want me to welcome the guests? And she says, well, you can't sweep. You can't cut up vegetables. Go out there and make yourself useful. And Death, he, he goes out to the front door there. And pretty soon, sure enough, people start coming up to the party. You know, they come to the door and Death says, welcome. And, you know, people are terrified. But this is Ireland. People have seen far stranger things than this, you know. And so eventually all the guests come in and, you know, it's Ireland. So pretty soon there's there's pints being served and shots being drunk and people are chatting away and talking and laughing. Everyone's talking, save for death. He's kind of in the corner. Nobody knows what to say to him. He doesn't know what to say to them. Uh, but after a while, the uh, the food comes out and the uh, the birthday cake uh, is cut. And uh, grandmother Biddy Early's uh, grandson, who's about seven years old, he he brings a piece of cake over to death. And he says, I brought this here for you, sir. And Death says, well, I'm, I'm Death. I don't eat any longer. And the boy says, it's birthday cake. It's for my grandmother here. And Death says, well, all right. And he takes a bite, you know, but he's nothing more than bones. And so the cake kind of bounces onto his ribs and then down and down on the floor. You know? and, and of course, who notices this? All of the children, you know, and pretty soon there's a long line of them. They all want to feed Death, you know, and 
He's, he's a good sport about it, though. He he eats everything they give him. He even drinks the punch they serve him. There's puddles of punch, piles of food at his feet. <laughs> and and now, of course, once again, it's Ireland. So out come the fiddles and the penny whistles. And pretty soon, everybody's up and dancing around, you know. And it might surprise you to know. Somebody went over to the corner after a while and just pulled dance death himself onto the dance floor. And, and, and pretty soon death was dancing with this person. And pretty soon there was another person dancing with death. And, and on and on and on the night went. And, and everybody danced with death. And death danced with everybody in the party. And the strangest thing was that this party was was longer. It was livelier than any party Biddy Early had ever had. And she had had a number of parties, you see. But finally it came to an end. And finally, Biddy Early and Death bid farewell to all the guests. They went out the door, and finally she turned to him and she said, I want to thank you, Death, for being patient with me and for letting me have my last party. And I'm ready to go with you. And so didn't she put her hand out to him? And didn't he put that cold, bony hand of his out to her? Uh, but he stopped. And he said, Grandmother... Uh, how about if I come for you next year at this time instead? And she said, well, that would be fine, Death, whatever it is that you want. No, no, I'd, I, I'll come for you next year. I can't remember when I've had such a good time. You know, I rarely get invited to parties, let alone having people dance with me and such. You know? No, I'll come for you next year, Grandmother. So away he went, but he came back the next year, and the next year actually was a lot like the first year, save for the fact that Death was a little better at sweeping, and cutting up the vegetables. And the fact of the matter is, those parties with death went on for years and years and years and years. And the people of that village became quite well known as being being wise and compassionate and, and a bit weird. And many of them would say, well, perhaps it's because all of us dance with death on a regular basis and he dances with us. And And even though he's not the most graceful of dancing partners, he's He's certainly no one that we're afraid of. Well, that's what they told me. But they also wanted me to tell you, Jeffrey, and all your friends there, that there's another party coming up real soon, and all of us are invited. And that's Biddy Early meets Death. Wow. I want you to know that Biddy Early actually was a historical figure. Um, and just a couple things about her. She was an interesting woman because she was a healer. People would come from miles around. They would actually camp around her little cottage there. And stay in the stay in the local inns if there was room. Um, she never accepted money for her healing. She said that to do so uh, would be to insult the fairy folk. But people wanted to give her something, and she needed to live somehow. And so they would give her, you know, they would bring a chicken or they'd bring eggs or something. And, and often they would bring pochine, which was Irish moonshine. And as a result, she had a lot of pochine around, and she would just give it out. And so her place became sort of a healing center, you know, and a pub. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, that's the story of uh, Biddy Early. I'll raise my glass to Biddy Early. As far as stress goes, one of the reasons I like to tell it is that as human beings, we tend to put stories around those things that are most stressful to us. And transition is always a big stressor. And one of the reasons why stories are good for stress is that stories are all about transition. Um, stories are all about how life changes, how things change, how people solve problems or don't. And uh, when I tell that story in retirement communities where people, you know, uh, are closer to walking out that, that door of, of death, I can tell 
you know, there's a marked sort of uh, relief or an understanding or just like a, ah, yeah, you know, because we're, we're talking about death. We're facing it in some way, in part by being humorous uh, about it. But I think that's one way of dealing with stress is telling stories about it, putting stories around it, you might say. I feel that. And that story obviously is cracking me up. The kids, the kids, you know, lining up to give them punch and cake. That, that, that of course, is funny. And the slow process of disarming death, you know, and disarming it and including it and um, and transforming the relationship with it. And that's very, very moving. And it, it became, for me, listening to the story, obviously, a hilarious condition and, and kind of uh, absurdity going on, but also the transition and the peace that came in terms of her accepting it, mm -hmm. you know, and from, from laughter to that, that emotional moment. And a lot of what I've been thinking about in my sense of, of human nature and human life, obviously death is a, a, a primary uh, motivation for stress. It's a, it's a primary pressure to survive and make it right. And like evolutionary biology and the, the, the sciences around, you know, how our brains work, how we adapt and how we function. But, you know, the imagination that you're bringing takes it to another level. And one of my recent shows I did was about the ego and, and, and defending the ego and celebrating the functionality of the ego. But out of those conversations, one of the things I realize is that we need to uh, uh, stretch, challenge, massage and mature the ego and developmentally and not just have an anti-ego stand or that, that need to have a sense of self. And one of the things I like about or I think the role with the transformative energy of stories is to stretch, mature, give the ego a chance to see other stories to develop a greater sense of self example in this bitty early story is to transform the the ultimate like fear and freeze response they're like oh death is at the door i'm just okay i'm done and then find agency find mm -hmm. communication yeah. find a way to build relationship and include it in the story and so i see it as kind of a, a ego <laughs> yoga yeah. <laughs> to, you know, like stretching into different positions and building more flexibility and a, a stronger sense of body and embodiment. And so this brings me to something we had recently talked about in our in our work sessions together, which is sitting with an image in a story. I know for me, that became the most resonant part of our collaboration when and how stories and images and stories and how to let them mm -hmm. cook in you. And if I was to like self-disclose and be honest that sometimes it takes me longer than I would <laughs> like for uh, the, the, the meal yeah. to cook, <laughs> you know, maybe it's, maybe it hasn't even gotten into the oven yet. Like I know the oven's there and I know that something I'm dealing with in my life, but it's all the, the ingredients are there, but I haven't actually placed it into the oven of imagination to let myself cook. And, and that transformative power of stories to help move, shape, reposition the sense of self and the encounter with the imagination. So that's my big feedback response, partly to the story, partly to what I was thinking about coming in, but also to our work that we've done over the past year. So I wanted to hand that back to you and, and let you riff on that, um, particularly the idea of letting an image cook in you and, and, and how to work with an image in a yeah, story. Yeah? That's good. Those are really good questions. Um, First of all, most of the stories that I tell are 
traditional myths, fables, fairy tales, and folk tales. I do some personal stories, but but largely it's this body of work that's been collected and told over time. And um, when I first come upon a myth that I like, it'll usually trip off something in my imagination or it will remind me of something I need to know or it'll challenge me in some way. Um, but, you know, the traditional stories are mostly in, in a format of a text. You find them in a book or maybe you hear them in a recording or something, but usually it's a text. And um, I say that an old story is like a big lump of coal. It's, it's a lump of coal is, is compressed energy over hundreds, thousands of years. It's been pushed, uh, all these, um, you know, ingredients uh, through great pressure have been um, pushed and condensed. So when fire is brought to it, it, it illuminates and it can warm you. And to me, that's what a story is. But the fire is the fire of our uh, dedication. It's the fire of our learning it. It's the fire of our sitting with it. It's the fire of our speaking the lines, uh, telling it to others. And um, one of the ways I, I think of it is that um, you go out sometimes and it'll be a foggy day and you might have to wait for several hours to the for the fog to lift so you can see the oak tree and you can see the outline of the hill and you can see the bay uh, in the distance. And that's oftentimes the process of working with the story is that by spending time with it again and again and again, the fog of it starts to lift and you say, oh, there's a, there's a scene there. I see the red of the cloak now. Oh, I see, oh, there's two people walking down that road. And this is a slow process and it requires time, but it's our dedication to the story, our love of the story that brings the heat to it, the flame to it. And then after a while, the story lights up and the story begins to illuminate us. The story gives gives us something that you know helps to cook our emotions and you might say cook some of the psychic material that's that's you know raw in our own being because I think a story can have that type of uh, you might say even therapeutic effect. It can bring to life things inside of us that have been dormant for for a long time. For example, I I, I know some stories that I've been telling on and off for ten years. And sometimes I'll get to a line and I'll say, oh, that's how that's supposed to go. I've told the story 30 times, but then finally I'll say, oh, I, I like it better that way. So a story is, is always forming, you know, and it, it can be told a little differently every time. That's one thing I love about storytelling is that depending on my mood, where I'm at, depending upon the audience, the time of day, the, the rendering of a story will, will change. Uh, it's the same story. It's the same narrative, same characters but how it's told and what it reveals and how people feel with it uh, is, is different. What I'm feeling as I, as I listen to you is the, the multiplicity, the containment of the story that it can hold or new variations or new teachings can happen for the listener, but also as the storyteller. I'm half curious on, and I want to start with this half, I'm half curious about your own transformational relationships with stories. Like where has a story or an image in a story where you've seen it change someone's life or, or change someone's stressful situation or in your own in your own relationship with yourself and your journey and the and the in the life you've made where has a story been an ally for you or an image in a story help you find that that breakthrough or that that therapeutic transformation yeah, yeah that's a good question yeah so one is um you know the a story I'm working on right now which is one of the Finn McCool stories Finn McCool was a ancient uh, Irish uh, warrior poet and uh, he was the head of this um, this band of, of warrior poets known as the Fianna or the Fianna and um, 
they, uh, I say they lived by the old code, and the old code was never give a sword to a man who can't dance. And the reason was that the Fianna knew that um, warfare and bloodshed was intoxicating, and that unless a man knew how to dance, had grace in his bones, unless he knew the old poems and the old stories, that he might wield a sword, but he also might never put it down. Right? And so they knew tomes of poetry and such. Well, the part of the thing that, that changed you know, my life was, for one, recognizing how I've always admired, nature has always been my, my church. And Finn McCool and his band, they were, they were hunter warriors. So most of the, most of the year, they, they lived in the out of doors in Ireland and they hunted and, and, and fished and foraged. But they lived very close, they would say, to the heart of Ireland, to the, the breath of the wind and the streams and such. Uh, they say they served the high king, but they worshiped Aaron, the goddess of Ireland. One of the moments in the story that always touched me is that when he is a young man, he, uh, his father has been killed and he's an outlaw. And this band, the Fianna, uh, they have been, uh, they've had to, to, to flee and they're living in a, in a huge bog, a huge swamp because they're outlaws now. And Finn is maybe 14 or 15 years old. He's being being chased by these uh, rival clan people. And uh, eventually, through some circumstance, he meets uh, this huge warrior. And this big warrior is um, robbing some of Finn's friends. They're, they're, they're on the road, they're, they're traveling, and, and, and he's fell in with this band of, of young, young students. This, this huge man, Fakale, he attacks them and starts taking what's of value to them. And Finn attacks him. And Finn uh, jumps on his back and he's pounding him and doing the best he can. And, and he gives his, his young friends an opportunity to escape and they do. But then Finn finds himself on his back and this huge warrior has his foot upon his chest and his spear to his throat. And um, the warrior says, before I run you through with this blade, tell me, who are you and where did you learn to fight like that? And Finn McCool, his given name was Devna, but he was called Finn by his family and friends. But he was told, whenever you're in the world, never use the name Finn McCool because you're an outlaw and to say your true name could mean your death. But now he realized that he probably would be dead soon and he wasn't gonna go to his death without calling out his true name. And he faced this warrior and he looked at him and he said, I'll tell you who I am. I'm Finn McCool. And my father was Kumail, the leader of the Fianna. And he was 10 times the fighter you are you bloody fucking coward. And then Finn waited for the spear to just pierce his throat. But instead, he watched this huge warrior fall to his knees and begin to weep. And then this warrior pulled Finn up and he said, your father was my captain and my best friend. I didn't know who you were, lad. There are men you need to meet. The fact that you're alive is a good omen for all of Ireland and for the Fianna. The life-changing thing in that for me um, was to actually speak your true name, to have the, the courage, the willingness to say who you truly are, though it may mean your death. And to me, that's in part the death of the ego, is that something needs to die for the larger self to live. You know? And what Finn found was that by speaking his true name, and he expected death, and the exact opposite happened. He was granted an ally for life. This great warrior for Kale that, that came to be his best friend and came to be his mentor and his teacher. I told that story one time in Astoria, Oregon, 
at a little performance gallery. And a woman came up, or she, she wrote me a couple months later, and she said, I want you to know that I decided after hearing the tale of Finn, and especially that one part where he calls out his true name, to, to give up the, you know, whatever it was I was studying and to become a performance artist and a storyteller and to get my master's in mythology. She said, because I realized that was my true name and I was denying it and I wasn't living it. So um, not to say that that happens on a regular basis, but to me, that's the kind of thing that, that makes storytelling magic. As somebody once said, you can live your whole life without a story or a poem. At the same time, a story or a poem could save your life, you know, and so um, because they have wisdoms in them and they have information. And that's one of the reasons we love stories is that we're looking for information as human beings. We want to know how, how do we get through this life? What do we do? How do we live it? And it's not easy. And they can give us ideas, to, as Barry Lopez said, to reimagine uh, our lives. So once again, long answer to a short question, Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's moving. And I love, I love the, um, the braid or the Celtic knot of, you know, someone initiating you into storytelling and you initiating somebody into storytelling through stories and the, and the, uh, the, the, the vitality of imagery and, and presence and, and relaying tales and, and the transformative power of that. I like that. And I think the other half of my, my curious part is, is thinking about, are the stories we all hold in our own lives. Uh, when I started working with you, that was one of the things I found really fascinating was starting to rethink my story and the aspects and the details of my story and the moments of my life and not, not studying them from a, a healing wound therapeutic point of view, but as in, as in deepening into the moment, into the experience, the imagination and what they had to say about me and what they said about my life. And it allowed me to mm, reshape my own storytelling. Right. So I would, I would suggest that myself for sure. And many other people that were, were always, you know, generating <laughs> stories about ourselves in different ways of like, Oh, I was awkward or that was great. Or I did that, you know, and, or I'm this person, I'm that person. Right. So there's, there's the, the fabrication part of the fabric and the weaving of our sense of self and, and who we are in the world and our experience and in art of story crafting and storytelling allowed me to um, revisit that and revisit elements that, I'd forgotten about or, or qualities that I needed to see maybe from a different point of view because we're talking about stress. And I, and I really think that the Finn McCool is like, Oh man, that's a great story because the, um, again, a death story has poignancy to it, but also the thing about the drama of his situation, you know, being caught in a bog and what do I do and my friends and all those feelings are so relatable in our time, I feel the way our stories are lived aren't lived out as well as maybe they were in more ancient times. Like we don't have the same opportunity to experience certain dramas in the same way. They're, they're more, we live more in, in the virtuality of communication and mediums and we don't yeah. enact fully all our stories in such a clear way. So the teaching of storytelling is where there's the clear dramas. It's like, oh yeah, that is the drama I am that I'm half seen and I, and I half feel. So I like that. And, and so I want to turn it, I want to make this first turn in the conversation towards our own stories and how story crafting and being with our own story is transformative, 
maybe to help us with stress or just understand our lives and our own narrative. And I know you, I know you have that um, skill set. So I'm wondering what you're thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. Being in touch with your own story, um, there, you know, there's a story we tell about ourselves, and then there's the story that's, you know, unfolding, uh, organically. And I think that, that there needs to be, you know, something of a accurate correspondence between the two. And I like what you said about maybe in ancient times, stories were lived out more fully. Um, one of the issues I think today is that we think we can live any story we want to. Uh, and part of what I think storytelling is valuable for, at least for myself, it's been when I study myths and fairy tales and folk tales, I find the thread of my own stories in certain stories. I say, oh, yeah, that's that's part of me. It helps me understand my story a little better. And, um, you know, through working with dreams and doing work with Michael Mead, who who's one been one, one of my great teachers, um, I realized that there is a myth unfolding uh, in me. Part of it you can see as being certain choices I made, but then part of it is just this sort of inevitable unfolding continually of, of who I am. And uh, part of the challenge is for the ego to get in tune with the larger unfolding of the soul's story that it's trying to tell. But in terms of what you're asking about getting in touch with personal stories, I, I, I teach a workshop uh, called To Tell the Holy, Storytelling as a Spiritual Practice. And uh, from, from what I understand, the word myth in the Navajo language means to tell the holy. And uh, just as every culture and tribe has its own body of holy stories or sacred manuscripts, I think that's true for each individual. We, we all are sitting on or within us. There's a group of stories that, that we might call our, our, our holy tales or our sacred stories. And I think to, to know those, not that you have to tell them aloud, but just to be in touch with them to some extent. You know, a time when spirit, you know, broke through you or out of you, or a time like you received, like you received some some great message, or a time when, when you felt just deeply in touch with the soul of the world, like just connected to the all that is. Uh, those are moments that stand apart from others, and so I think that's one way of getting in touch uh, with with the stories uh, that have helped to shape us and tell us time and time again who we are, because we're human beings, we forget. One of the reasons of doing storytelling is to re-remember, ah, oh, yeah, this is what I love. This is what delights me. This is who I am. This is what feeds me. This is how I feed others, you know? So uh, anyway, I think that's one, one way into it is to recall the experiences in your life that help to form who you are. You can call those initiatory experiences or holy stories or sacred moments, whatever you want to call them. Not that they're all necessarily pleasing or happy, because we learn a lot from tragedy and difficulty uh, and pain also. You know, a hero's journey can start, you know, by climbing the great mountain and being inspired. It can also start by being ill and dropping down, you know, into a place of ashes. Um, but, to, but to be in touch with the many stories uh, that have helped develop, you know, who we are and give us our perspective. Those resonate for me, and I'm just thinking a little bit about my own stories. I was just telling somebody recently the the last six days of my dad's life when he was in the hospital was really important for me it was a holy time in in the sense of the quality time that we had and the opportunity to be present with him and to, to give my care to him in a way that was the obstructions of the relationship and the challenges of the relationship the drama of the relationship you're my father i'm your son and we're here in this moment right and and having that level of intimacy and the intimacy of being with someone when they die and, and how 
a deeply profound a a feeling that was and an experience it was so yeah that that story was that would be one of my stories that i would say was is a sacred a sacred moment or a holy piece of my my life and um one of the things i appreciate about my dad is that in that moment before he was really his very end he was having some trouble breathing and i started having him tone a little bit and then he's you know he's not he's not on the you know the, the spiritual world wasn't in the spiritual you know he's catholic and a hunter right. and a smoker and a businessman and you know like nice cars and and um i had a good sense of of humor but also it was intense kind of like you know, I can resonate with all those things, but he, he, he's sitting there and he's toning and then he just, he starts oming instead of toning <laughs> and his little, his eyes turn, you know, the little light comes on his face and he's smiling. He just kind of, you know, just knows, just knows he's playing with the choices I made in my life in that moment. And it was, it was mm -hmm. really funny, but it was also really Beautiful. sweet because it was an ICU moment, you know, which, um, okay, I'll just go with this one. Another ICU moment I had with my dad in the stories of my life were, um, so I, I, another podcast I've talked about, I did a whole season on fathering, um, the first season and, but it was rough in a lot of ways. Cause my dad didn't do his anger. Well, he didn't do his, his he did it well. <laughs> he, he did it strongly, but not well. Um, it, it, <laughs> um, you know, it was well cooked. And, um, and you know, as, as I've, as I've gotten older, I can understand that, but my child self couldn't, it was just, you know, it was overwhelming and, and stressful and um, yeah. but uh we were we went for a hike we had a moment we went for a hike and it was a one-to-one -one moment right like there's like three brothers and i have a sister too but it was hard to have that one-to-one -one moment and uh we went for a hike out of our house in the south shore of lake tahoe and we were walking across the mountainside and he said you know i forget that your legs have to work harder to keep up with mine oh you know, and he's like, he, he presents that and he told me that. Yeah. Right. And he, and, and he also told me another time where I'm just doing father stories, I guess, but <laughs> he told me another time that, you know, like he kept stuff inside too much mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that was a problem for him. And so in the personal stories, those would be all like really core personal stories I have with my father, beautiful. even telling them again today is, is beautiful. It's like the retelling of, yeah. Okay. Yeah somehow those were transmissions for me those were important to me those are beautiful stories jeffrey and you know when you tell them one of the things i realize is that you know we tell those stories in part because they help us to remember who we are what's important to us but those stories you know once you have lived those experiences and gone through them to me that that's in part the medicine that we carry um you know you've known death you you went through that transition with your father you know, you had that moment with him walking, you got that piece of wisdom. You know, that's in part the medicine that we have to give out. And to me, that's one of the values of storytelling. It's it's a sharing of who we are and what we know. And you never know, like you tell a story to somebody and you never know how it's going to, how they're going to respond. Like that woman said to me, that, that little part of the story helped to change my life, you know. So that's one of the reasons why, like your father said, he had so much inside of him. One of the values of storytelling is getting what's inside of us outside of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I want to tie it a little bit to stress. And I, I think we're in a stressful time. I want to tie it into the, the idea of stress because part of stress is being compressed, being under pressure, right? And so like what are release valves and, and part of stress is tunneling or narrowing or separating from or, or freezing up in the imagination or having the wrong story, the wrong ego story that's denying the soul or harmful to somebody else's soul. And, and, and so 
I want to make that turn and be like, also acknowledge that we're in a time of great distress in our stories, the stories that we have and around us, both the untruth in stories, the manipulation of storytelling, the way that businesses understand the nature of stories and how to, you know, use our storytelling mechanisms to, you know, move us in certain ways that aren't necessarily about benefiting us, but benefit somebody else or, or the same with politics and the way stories is, is used as, as deception or half-truths or, um, and the incredible, you know, different stresses of the stories that we're in from this, you know, Ukrainian Russian situation going on, this invasion and this war. And, yeah. and I want to acknowledge that is personal and as profound and as um, beautiful, personally transformative stories are and the craft of storytelling is. I want to also just get your sense on how we can use our, our sense of uh, understanding our story making selves as a way to interact with the difficulties of the world, the stresses of the world. And I'm sure you've got some thoughts on that. You opened up a few, a few cans here. So uh, first off, just this thing about, you know, cause I, I've worked with nonprofits and profit making organizations and you know, they see storytelling as a tool for persuasion. And I say, be, be careful when you use stories, because I say, you know, um, you're telling a story, but the story is also telling you. And if you're telling a bunch of BS, eventually it's going to get back to you and people are going to say, that's who you are. Uh, it's a double-edged sword when you start using stories just for the purpose of persuasion. You know, it's important to to note, uh, I think, that, you know, one of the reasons why storytelling is so, you know, popular these days is that um, it's so difficult to get our attention. <laughs> you know, our attention is being pulled 20 different directions. And story has always been a way to, you know, get people to pay attention to a good story. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, you know, I've, I've often said, um, if you use story as a, as a club or story as, you know, I'm going to tell the story to make you do something or persuade you to do something. After a while, people smell it. They smell a rat. And uh, I've tried to tell stories with a moral in them, a specific moral in to uh, uh, teenagers. And, and they just close their eyes and go to sleep. You know, they can smell it coming, you know. So I will say the primary thing is to tell a story because you love it. You want to serve it. Put out the story, you know, out of your love for it, your, your willingness to, to um, have people have something that's nourishing and delicious. And you don't even have to know why it's, it's, it's good. If, if you love it, put it out there. Let people do with it what they, what they want to. In terms of these dark times, um, I was reminded of, you know, another very dark time. And this was the a time way, way, way back in the in the Middle East, there was a sultan, um, very, very powerful czar or king, and he found out that his wife had betrayed him, and because of that, he had her beheaded. And then he he was so angry that he found every lover that she'd ever had and had them beheaded. And then his anger turned into rage, and this gets into a little bit what you were talking about. Our imagination can get very narrow. And he was so enraged that he said, uh, I will never, ever be betrayed by another woman again. And so he began this really strange and awful custom. Uh, every, every morning he would marry a maiden, and every night he would sleep with her, and then every day at dawn he would have her beheaded. And so in this way he would never be betrayed again by another woman. This, this went on for three years' time. And because his power was absolute, nobody could do anything. Everybody was angry. They were sad. The, the, the maidens of, of the realm were being offered up. 
and nobody knew what to do. And um, there just happened to be a minister that worked for this sultan, and the minister, the, he, was, he was the vizier. The vizier, he was the one that saw that the beheadings were carried out. He didn't actually swing the scimitar, but, but he was the one that, that brought in the, the ones that did that. He had two daughters, and one of them was named Dunyazad, she was the younger, and the older was named Shahrazad. And you might recall that name, Shahrazad, but she um, had been uh, highly and broadly educated in the arts and the sciences. She knew um, lots of poetry. She was a brilliant storyteller. She had studied stories from India and from China, from all over the known world. And she was also a woman of incredible heart. And she had been kept in secret about what had been happening, but when she finally found out about the murder of all these women, she went to her father and she said, make me the next bride of the Sultan because I have a way that I might live. And if I can survive, I'll gladly be the ransom for my sisters. And he forbid it, but finally, she said, if you forbid it, I'll send a note to the Sultan saying that I longed to marry you, but my father said that to do so would be to marry beneath me. And he said, you wouldn't. He said, I would and I will. She was a woman of incredible courage. So the day before she went to marry the Sultan, she went to her sister Dunyazad and she told her of this plan she had. And, um, and then sure enough, she was married. It was more like a funeral than a wedding. And she went to the king's chamber that night, the sultan's chamber, and slept with him. And then in the deep of the night, there was a knock at the chamber of the sultan's door. And it was Dunyazad, Scheherazade's sister. And she said, Scheherazade's sister, she said, please, so that my last memory of you is sweet, please open the door and let me see your face one more time. And Scheherazade, she appealed to the sultan who said, I will allow it. And so Dunyazad came in, and you could see her now. She was seated at the at the foot of the bed in, in which lay the Sultan and Scheherazade. And Dunyazad said, Scheherazade, please, uh, so that I have one last memory of your stories, would you tell me one of your beautiful tales? And Scheherazade said, I, I would do that, Dunyazad, if it, is the, if it is the will and the pleasure of our just and great Sultan. And the thing about the Sultan was that he hadn't heard any stories in a long, long time. The only story he knew was the story of his own pain and the story of his own wound. And so he said, well, I have no trouble in hearing a little tale. And he had no idea that he was in the presence of a master storyteller. And Scheherazade started off slowly weaving some poetry together, which enchanted him. And then she started telling stories and fairy tales from China and folk tales from India. And, and the Sultan was mesmerized and his imagination began to open up. He began to feel feelings he hadn't felt in a long time. And it was almost like a, like a window had been opened to a room that hadn't known fresh air in a long, long, long time. And through the night she told these stories and then uh, she was in the middle of a story. It was a story about a, a merchant who was on a long journey and he was returning home to his family after having been gone for a couple of years. And he was only a day's ride from his home, and he was so looking forward to seeing his wife and his children. He was greatly beloved by his community. But it so happened he stopped by an oasis to water his horse and to refresh himself. And while he was there, he ate a few, he ate a few dates. And then he took the date nuts and he, he threw them uh, into the oasis, into the reeds. He didn't realize that they struck the, the head of, a, of the son of a genie. 
this invisible son of a genie. And they say sometimes that what we do in this world has great impact upon the other world, whether we know it or not. And in striking the head of this sleeping uh, genie son, it killed him. And just like that, this enormous genie rose out of the oasis and unsheathed an enormous scimitar, curved sword. And he said, mortal, you have murdered my son. And it will be now as it has always been a life for a life. And he raised up the scimitar and the merchant had no idea what he'd done. He got down on his knees and he wept. He pleaded for his life. He said, great, great master of the jinn, I never would harm a child. I have children of my own. Please tell me what I have done. The genie said, you have murdered. And it is now as it will always be a life for a life. And he raised up this massive scimitar and the sun gleamed upon it. And the sun gleamed upon the blade. And Scheherazade said, oh, look, my lord, just as the sun gleams upon the blade in the story, so the sun gleams in our window now, for the dawn has come, and with it the hour of my death, and so I will not be able to finish this story, which I think you would agree has a most interesting and surprising conclusion. And it was like the, the sultan had been awoken from a dream. He was so deeply in, in the story. He didn't want to be betrayed by this woman, but he did want to hear the end of the story. And so he said, Scheherazade, I will grant you one more day of life so you can finish this little tale. But tomorrow will be the last day that you live. And of course, as well as wanting to hear the story, he wanted to enter that time again with Scheherazade, that time of once upon a time, that time where he was free of all the pain and the woe that he knew in his own heart. She came back the next night and she finished the story, but then she started another one. And it might surprise you to know that she couldn't finish that one at dawn either. She was an artist, and they have difficulty with closure, after all, you know. <laughs> she told stories for a thousand and one nights, always with the sort of death hanging over her head. And they say that in time, it was the many threads of those stories that threaded the torn heart of the Sultan back together. It was the many ideas of those stories that opened up his mind into different ways of seeing it was the different feelings of the story that opened up his heart into a multitude of feelings. And in time, he returned to become a just ruler of the realm. And in time, the realm healed. And in time, it might surprise you to know. Into... Oh, you know what? I'm out of time, Jeffrey. I don't have the time to finish this story. But if you allow me another day of life sometime, I will. And I think you would agree it has a most surprising conclusion. And that's Scheherazade. So... I tell that story at times like these for several reasons. One is that what do we do uh, in the most difficult of times? And there's many, many things to do. One, of course, is direct confrontation. I mean, there are warriors now in Ukraine, among the Ukrainian people, fighting and taking up arms. That is a just cause, you know. Um, she didn't have that option. If Scheherazade had confronted the king directly, the sultan directly, she would have been killed immediately, head off. So how did she work? So one thing she realized is that you can also work in the subconscious. Right? And so it's important to notice that she works with the Sultan at night. She, she doesn't go directly to confront him in his chamber of power. She works at night when he's close to the dream time. And in part, this is his condition. He has forgotten how to dream. In other words, he's forgotten how to imagine a future any different from his present. Right? 
And, and this is why we say he is, there's an old saying in, in, in storytelling that if you know lots of stories, you could be wise. If you know just one, you could be a zealot, right? And that's what the Sultan had become. He was captive of the mono myth. There was only one story, right? And that was the story of his wound and his pain. And that was true, you know, but what he needed as Scheherazade knew it was simply more stories. And so it wasn't that she just told him, you know, magical stories that opened up his mind, but she just trusted the power of the ceremony of storytelling as well. Because if you read A Thousand and One Nights, some of the stories are ridiculous, they're funny, some are profound, some are about other sultans that get wounded by women, some are about women who save sultans. And so she gave him all kinds of different medicine. And because he had been wounded in the marital bed, he had to be healed in the marital bed. And that's in part what she did. But part of the problem, and one of the things that, uh, one of the points this makes is that to make change, we have to get close to the wound, <laughs> you know. She had, to, she had to risk her life to gain the proper proximity to tell her stories, you know. And so at great risk, she did this, but also knowing that she wasn't alone because she carried many, many, many stories. She had wisdoms and ideas uh, from many different cultures. So anyway, I always think that story is relevant at times of great difficulty and, and trauma. It's on point, and I can't help but imagine that um, Putin's often, often described as someone who has one grievance, the loss of Russian dominance power, and that's his grievance, and that's the one zealot story. And it's it's kind of yeah, colors everything. sad, painful, but just to narrow it down to one man's imagination of what could be and and the lack of imagination of what could be and or what's trying and, and how much his story that he's held on to is harming other people. And, and I think, and that's been one of my questions of, of like, okay, how, how does change happen here in this situation? And it's really hard. There's the warrior side, but there's the imagination side too. And I don't know that that's, um, I don't know that's being redressed. I really don't, mm -hmm. but I, I appreciate you for pointing it out. I appreciate you for being here today. I love you. I think you're, you, the work you do, the soul you bring and, and the gifts you bring to, um, my life and the people around you who have a chance to hear your stories and, and hear the power of stories and work with stories is a really a noble craft to offer the world. So thank you for being on the show today and thank you for, for being here. It's a pleasure. I always, it, it means a lot to me because I think differently about what I do just by being interviewed. And you know, there's no greater gift than being listened to and you have done that. So thanks so much for drawing me out too and letting me see uh, things differently also. So it's been a pleasure, brother. Thank you so much for joining us today. All music is performed by the incredible and effervescent Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. Please support this podcast by following us on your favorite streaming platform, sharing it with your community and friends, and by making a modest donation to our Patreon page. To learn more about this show, our guests, as well as Jeffrey and his work helping people make peace with their human nature, go to howhumanswork.us.